Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, the news still uh, is uh, just festering now with the, the reaction to what happened with the New York Times and their op-ed piece, the anonymous op-ed piece that appeared uh, a couple of days ago now. And uh, the fallout from that, uh, Donald Trump can't seem to stop tweeting about it or talking about it. But with that, of course, uh, also comes into play, and I think part of the discussion has to be about journalistic ethics. And a number of people have raised this issue about what the New York Times actually did by posting something that was anonymous. Lawrence Martin writes about it in the uh, the Globe and Mail today. Uh, Lawrence, of course, is a public affairs columnist uh, for the Globe based down in Washington. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the piece. Lawrence, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. You've been around the newspaper biz for a lot of years now in, in different places. Uh, tell me your reaction when you saw this thing in, t- in, the, in the Times the other day. Well, I was really disappointed, Bill, because, well, first of all, I consider the uh, New York Times, uh, you know, the, the best uh, newspaper in the world, the most uh, responsible newspaper in the world as well. And uh, to see them uh, lower their standards to uh, print a, uh, an op-ed piece, uh, uh, give, it, give somebody the cloak of anonymity, uh, uh, Washington uh, White House insider, to uh, take down the president, uh, uh, that, really, that was really disappointing because um, yeah, th- this is not, not something that's done in journalism, and really they did not have good reason to do so here because, frankly, what the, uh, what the person said about Trump has been written about 100 times already. So, um, and now, you know, now people are wondering, well, you know, seeing as how they've uh, given uh, somebody uh, this uh, free... Uh, half a page in the New York Times uh, to write anonymously uh, bad things about uh, the president. Are they now going to turn around to New York Times and give somebody a clo- uh, Trump admirer in the White House to uh, to write uh, good things about the president? So it raises that whole problem, too. The, uh, and their justification, I mean, I'm sure you saw the the explanation from the, uh, the, the gentleman that actually made the call. I guess obviously it was a board, but one guy individually who seemed to be in touch with this uh, this individual uh, was uh, obviously trying to protect this this person's identity, but I never really heard a rational explanation as to why they would go with the, this route. Uh, yeah, I mean, the tradition, uh, Bill, is if somebody comes to the uh, newspaper and, you know, has a, what sounds like an interesting story to tell, uh, you, you send them to the, the news department and... Uh, and and to a reporter and 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 that reporter will follow up and uh, check out what the guy says and maybe a team of reporters if it's a big story and then they'll do a page one news story right even if sometimes just according to many sources and that's how you do it you just don't take one man's view and and give them that credibility under the cloak of uh, anonymity so that's where they breach traditional journalistic ethics they've had they have run they say the odd uh, anonymous op-ed piece, but it hasn't been, there's never been one from a uh, senior White House uh, insider. Yeah, uh, you know, the precedent that I've heard a number of people talk about here, Lawrence, is, well, what about Deep Throat, you know, during the Watergate days? And Woodward, of course, never did, well, he did eventually, but 30 years later, reveal the identity of that individual. But uh, that, at the time, didn't seem to get the same sort of scrutiny as what the Times has done. No, well, it's entirely different because uh, that that was news reporting uh, that was tracking down sources um, for for the uh, news site of the newspaper. It wasn't turning over your uh, opinion pages 
to give a guy uh, 800 words to uh, say what he wants without using his name. So it's uh, it's not the same thing at all. Yeah, because I, I can still remember, I mean, back in, you know, my early days at Mohawk College, I mean, Journalism 101, Lawrence, and I'm, I'm sure every journalist has this drilled into their head right from the beginning, is is you you don't go with one source. There always has to be some sort of confirmation, doesn't there? Absolutely, yeah. And in the Watergate the reporting, you're right, Bill, they always said they had at least uh, two sources, one corroborating what the other has, has said. And, of course, with this piece in the New York Times, uh, you don't have that. So they're, they're breaching standard uh, protocols here. And, frankly, you know, it plays right into the uh, Trump uh, and his followers, uh, their criticism of, uh, of the New York Times, of the mainstream media, uh, for doing that, I mean, you can be more easily be accused of uh, fake news when you do something like this. Whether you know when you don't even name the person bringing out the news, than uh, than traditionally, right? So that that creates a lot of problems here too. And I think the precedent is really bad because now that other media and other newspapers say, "Hey, well, the New York Times is." Uh, is granting anonymity for uh, big, huge uh, op-ed pieces. Uh, we can go do that, too. We'll go to a Canadian, get somebody in uh, Trudeau's cabinet and uh, say, here, you know, you don't, we won't name you. Say what you want uh, in a piece for us. And, and that's not good journalism, is it? No, not at all. I mean, and you point this out in the piece today in the Globe and Mail, and, and actually we were just talking about Bob Woodward. Uh, he's got a new book coming out. Uh, it's on the bookshelves next week, and we've already seen some excerpts from that. And, and it seems as if it's variations on the same theme we're talking about here, Lawrence, uh, because a lot of the stuff that apparently he's included in this book is, is unattributed. It's uh, sources say, etc. And, and that's somewhat unlike what Woodward's did. I mean, obviously I've read his other stuff from Watergate, and I read Plan of Attack uh, about the Bush administration, about uh, what was going on with the shock and awe and the weapons of mass destruction and everything. But just about everything in that book was attributed. I mean, he, he did do his homework on that one. It sounds as if he may have done an end run around some of the things with the new book. Yeah, I mean, I've, well, I haven't even got it yet. It's not even in the stores. No. But, so I don't want to analyze it, but uh, that's the reporting on it. It says that he's, uh, he's uh, using a lot of an- anonymous sources, uh, which has got the, uh, the Trump administration stander up. Um, but to the point about, um, I, again, uh, this is it's, it's sort of a piling on thing here in that we, starting with the Fire and the Fury book, remember that? Yeah. Um, and, and that basically said the same thing as a New York Times op-ed piece and, the, and a Woodward uh, book, you know, painting a picture, which is very true, by the way, of a president uh, unhinged, uh, manic, of people inside uh, around him, you know, saying, you know, how can we get rid of this guy? Um, but as I say, it's been done a hundred times, so I didn't find anything really uh, earth-shattering in the New York Times piece at all. But frankly, it has uh, touched off a wave of uh, excitement and inquiry as to who the uh, the author of the piece is, and therefore the uh, New York Times is probably pleased because it's got an enormous uh, response uh, from uh, from readership and from uh, people following up on it. Yeah, and that was the reaction I heard from an awful lot of folks as well, Lawrence. I, was, I David Corn from uh, Mother Jones reacted that way. I remember seeing him on NBC that, that that evening, and he said, "Tell you know, tell me something I don't know." And, we, and, and we've already heard this, and and even if some of the stuff that uh, that they talked about here about some of the uh, the comments that s- staff have allegedly made about Trump. Uh, we know a lot of this stuff. I mean, we know what Tillerson said, and we know what uh, what some of the what Madison and others have said from time to time. Of course, they've denied it, but I mean, that stuff's out there already. 
Uh, and, and I guess what it does now is it's got people thinking, as you point out in the piece today, about the journalistic ethics of the Times as opposed to the content of what's in there. Yeah, you know what, uh, and it's also true, Bill, that you go through uh, any government, uh, you will find uh, people around the uh, leader in that government who are, uh, you know, always trying to thwart the guy's worst instincts, right? I mean, this is what aides and people around him are supposed to do, uh, you know, to try and uh, step in his way and say, oh, my God, let's, we've got to prevent the boss from doing that type of thing, right? So it's not all that unusual that this kind of thing is going on with Trump. It's going on with Trump to a far greater degree, I would say, but uh, it's the type of thing that, uh, that, that happens and should happen in any government. What would, with your journalistic experience, what would have happened if the Times had insisted that this individual be named and just said, look, we're not going to print it unless you come forward? Well, that's a problem they had. The, the guy, the, 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 you know, the Trump administration is, is, is labeling the guy a coward or the, or the woman a coward for not being named, for not naming themselves. But uh, they, they realized that uh, they would have to leave their job if they, if they did put their name to this piece. From the point of view of the Times, they should have said, uh, wow, okay, you want to say this, uh, you're an important figure in the White House, uh, you know, uh, we're going to send you to our news site of the paper and, uh, and, and, and interview on, you on this and uh, do a story on page one based on, on what, you, what you are saying and, and we're going to check it out with other sources. Uh, and then, you know, that's what they traditionally do. And, and But for some reason, they decided to break ethics uh, on this one, and I think it damaged uh, and will damage the reputation of a, a great, great newspaper. Well, and, and again, the, we go back to the question that you posed right at the beginning here at the, of your piece today, Lawrence. What were they thinking? Because that is the routine, and these guys know that. And, and I mean, even if, if you've, anybody has never even been inside a newsroom or one of these meetings, these editorial meetings, uh, it, you know, even if you watch the movie, All the President's Men, uh, you know, Ben Bradley quizzed these guys and raked these guys over the cold, Woodward and Bernstein, as they were doing that, saying, get me some facts, get me some corroboration. In other, in other words, they didn't ever print, if you recall, they never printed what Deep Throat said to Woodward. They, what, he gave them ideas, and they had to go and check it out and try to get confirmation of, and from the different sources. And it sounds as if these guys just decided, no, this is so salacious, we're just going to run with it. And that's, that's not what we expect from the New York Times. Well said, well said. And I don't think you, Bill, would allow a, uh, somebody uh, from government to come in and take up uh, five minutes of your show uh, <laughs> blistering someone uh, and, and not naming themselves in, in doing so, right? Well, it's just, yeah, it's just not done. There has to be some sense of corroboration. And again, it, it, what's happened here now is, is if they thought what they were going to do was, was to move this, dis, this discussion forward about how ineffective Trump and the administration may be, uh, they've lost that because that's not the dialogue. That's not the narrative that's happening now. It's about whether or not this was ethical. Yeah, now, and as I say, are they going to turn around the New York Times and, and, and balance what they've done by giving a Trump admirer, uh, an insider, uh, you know, anonymity to come out and, and bash the uh, point of view that was presented yesterday? Um, <laughs> I just hope it doesn't set that kind of precedent where we see this, these type of uh, anonymous pieces written uh, all the time. Well, you're down in the Beltway. Would, would that happen? I mean, are you concerned, really, that, that other newspapers and uh, may, may just say, hey, if they did it, I guess we can do it too? Or are they simply going to say, look at this, this is an example of what not to do and just move on from that? Yeah, well, I think, judging by the reaction, uh, the Times got a lot of quite a bit of negative reaction. I don't know what you've seen, but quite a bit of positive reaction too, right? Yeah. 
So I, I think some would pick up on that and say, my God, the, time, the Times, they got a lot of hits on that uh, by doing that. Uh, and maybe we can do it too. I'm sure they could find. I'm sure they could find uh, tons of people inside government who would gladly put out a point of view without having put their put their name on it. Right? How much of a, a witch hunt is there going to be now? I know, obviously, within the administration to try to find out who this is. But for, from the journalistic field, uh, Lawrence, is is the is the hunt on right now to try to get a name for this individual? It is, but I think that, uh, and that's been hectic for the last day or so, but I think like everything else uh, here, it uh, sort of dies out within a day, right? There's some mm-hmm. other big story is going to, big story is going to crash upon us today or tomorrow, and, and this one will be forgotten. I mean, it's too bad this is going on in the sense that the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, the Supreme Court hearings are going on, a much more, a very, very important story, and it's being totally overshadowed by this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And you talk about priorities. Uh, I know you got to run. Listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. Great piece in the Globe and Mail today. Thanks as always, Lawrence. Appreciate it, Bill. My pleasure. You betcha. Lawrence Martin, of course, uh, from the Globe and Mail uh, down in Washington covering the uh, the political scene. And his, his point is well taken. Uh, this is stuff, and I'm not going to suggest that this is, this is not relevant because it certainly is. Uh, and, and what was put in the piece, the content of the piece in the Times, uh, is, is interesting reading. But obviously what you look for is validation. And it would have carried a lot more weight if somebody had said, I am so-and-so, and, and this is how we feel. Uh, because there's an insinuation there that there is a, a, a cluster of people within the, the White House, within the Trump administration, that are basically trying to run the country in spite of Donald Trump, not the way that Donald Trump wants to. That's, that's a very serious allegation, to be sure. It absolutely is. But now, all of a sudden, people simply saying dismiss, uh, dismiss this because, you know, who is this? We don't know. There's no corroboration. Uh, and th- there's got to be a part B to this if somebody wants to really make this happen and, and get that story out there. And it's difficult as it is, obviously, uh, in, the, in journalism these days to try to come up with that sort of information. Uh, it's going to come up again. Uh, we mentioned the fact that Woodward's book uh, is coming out. That'll be September the 11th, as a matter of fact. Uh, is the date that that's going to hit the bookshelves. We've already seen some excerpts from this, and it's variations on the same theme. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, as Lawrence already mentioned, uh, news cycles tend to change about every 24 hours. We saw that certainly the other day when the talk was about the Woodward book and some of the insinuations, and within hours that was shoved to the back pages, and all of a sudden we we're talking about the, uh, the op-ed in the New York Times. And uh, in the meantime, there's a very, very serious process going on to appoint a new justice to the Supreme Court in the United States, which could have a major impact on a number of different things, uh, including a possible impeachment, including Roe versus Wade and a number of other things that seem to be on the table right now. And not a whole lot of people are paying attention to that. Interesting. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, as we've mentioned, we've been uh, talking about uh, the Basic Income Project, about uh, a number of different things that are uh, dealing with people that are facing challenges in our community right across the province, uh, which is why uh, so many folks were upset about uh, some of the yearly announcements, of course, by the Ford government, uh, first of all, killing the Basic Income Project, uh, even though they had promised during the election campaign that they wouldn't do that. Uh, and another is a, a rollback. We didn't get a whole lot of detail about this, but this is going to have a significant impact as well. Uh, as part of that legislation, uh, the the previous government uh, had also planned, of course, to uh, to increase uh, the o- OW payments uh, by uh, well, I think it was about five one point five percent. Anyway, three percent. I'm sorry. And the, the government now, the Ford government, has said, "No, we're not going to do that. Uh, it's going to roll back to one point five. 
Uh, and of course, there's a minimum wage thing, and on and on it goes. And uh, if it doesn't have an impact on you, it's probably not on your mind. But it is having an impact on you because those that are in dire circumstances these days are, are basically reaching out and, and trying to get help. That's why we have food banks. That's why we have problems with, with social service costs. And of course, that goes on to your property taxes to a great extent. So it does have an impact on you, whether you think it does or it doesn't. This is why this report that I've got in my hand right now is so important. It's called Hunger Count 2018. Uh, Hamilton Food Share, of course, uh, did some counting and got some folks to uh, answer some questions about this. And uh, the picture that this paints around is very, very troubling. I want to bring Joanne Santucci into the uh, discussion. Uh, Joanne, of course, is with Hamilton Food Share, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Joanne, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Oh, lovely to talk to you, Bill. Listen, we, we've known that there are concerns here and some problems, and, and we, I think, probably were thinking, hey, you know what, we're trying to get a handle on this, and there were some programs that were being put in place. But the, the picture that these statistics paint right now is pretty troubling and pretty scary. It's very alarming, Bill, very alarming. Where else is there to go? Well, yeah, that's, people, that's the question. The I mean, the, the people in these situations, they're no longer deciding whether to go out on a Friday night or stay home because they have to get their rent and all that paid. They're now deciding between medicine and paying the rent. Uh, kids' clothes for school, paying the rent. Uh, it, it's between basic necessities now. How much desperate does it have to get, Bill, before someone says, enough? Well, a lot of people are saying enough, and, and that's why these, these cutbacks that have been announced already, even in the first couple of months of this uh, new yeah. government, are, are rather troubling. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking it's at some of the stuff. It's a betrayal, Bill. Well, it's well, a betrayal. Well, it is, and, and especially, you know, we, the basic income thing. I know we've talked a, a great deal about yeah. this, and, and, and that's one of the things that bothers me. I mean, if, if they had campaigned and said, you know what, if you elect us, we're going to cancel the program, yeah. I, 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 I would disagree with that, but at least I'd say, okay, you, you're being fair and, and upright about this. But to simply say you're going to do this and then not, and then even to roll back the increases in OW that the other government had already proposed, that, that was legislation that was passed, as a matter of fact, uh, you, you have to wonder about the impact this is going to have on people. And these are the people that you see almost every day, if, let alone every week, at, at, at food banks right across the city. You know, uh, there's a little saying on top of that hunger count, and I think about it all the time, and it says, hunger is the price I pay for the roof over my head. Can you imagine when you go home tonight, I want people to listen to this. When you go home tonight, just think about that. Where you're having a meal, you worked hard for it, all those other things. Just know there are others who are in a, a shelter, and the price for that shelter is going without food. I, I don't know how much more we can talk about it. I don't know how much more provincial governments can allow this kind of proliferation of poverty. What they're actually doing is downloading the absolute responsibility of our safety net to our local community, and it's not right. We fought hard for that safety net. We fought for equality uh, in the economy for, for decades, and here we are. Every provincial government, almost everyone, starts to untangle it, starts to dismantle it, and there are holes. And I'm not just talking little rips in that net. There are gaping holes in that net. Children are going hungry on the street. This is not right, Bill. It's not right. 
Well, there are plans, and, and there were programs in place, and, and you know we've we've tried, obviously, to make some accommodation in this, but uh, as I was mentioning in, in my earlier comments, Joanne, I mean, this does eventually fall onto the community and try to do something about this. And I, I can remember back when I was on city council, I, I was on the, the, the affordable housing uh, task force that was involved in that, and uh, and I, I got a, a an, an idea at that time because I know one of the first things they said is, uh, and and anybody knows this by the way, when they go to apply for a mortgage, even if uh, you know if they're in exactly. a much better financial situation, they'll say, listen, yeah. oh, this this percentage of your income should go to to accommodation, to to rent or to to mortgage payments, whatever it is. And I, I think it was something like twenty five or thirty percent. They said if you thirty if you go above that, she yeah. says you're really pushing the envelope. A number yeah. of the people that were involved in this report are paying more than half. 50% yes. of, of yes. the money that they get is going just to put a roof over their head. Now, this is from, like, over the, the, I've been around for 28 years, Bill, and I'm telling you that the call today is evidence-based data. This report is evidence-based data. The basic income was going to provide evidence-based data. No one was secure after that three-year period, but we were going to analyze that data and see how best we can attack poverty in this province, given all of that information, right? Now, CMHC, Canadian Mortgage Housing Company, are the actual ones who say, that you know, there's, there's a there's a, a myriad of measurements or metrics involved in knowing whether you have uh, you're at high risk of homelessness. And one of them is if you pay between thirty and forty nine percent, you're at high risk of homelessness because you're not going to be able to afford the other things. If you pay more than fifty percent, you're at extreme risk of homelessness. This is the amount of basic income on these benefit programs the government is giving people. They are putting them at extreme risk of homelessness at a time in Hamilton where a lot of our shelters are operating at capacity. We can't afford to have even 50 to 100 people hitting the street losing their battle with poverty. And I'm going to tell you something else, too. In Hamilton, there is no city more engaged in eliminating poverty right here in this city. We have a fantastic city council who is now really... Um, committed over $50 million for more um, affordable housing, more uh, subsidized rental units. You couldn't get a more engaged community. We have unbelievable food and financial donors given to this system to ensure that people have enough to eat. We are doing our part. What is not being done is uh, looking at the provincial government to put those rates back at a place where there are humanitarian levels, where children aren't going hungry and not having formula to eat in the morning, or, and children going up to school with no lunches. It's not right, and it's on them. If you're making 1100 bucks, uh, uh, if you're on Ontario Disability, for instance, I forget what the monthly payment is. I guess it varies to a certain extent. And if you're paying $700 out of that 1100 bucks just to put a roof over your head, how do you feed your family? How do you buy groceries? How do you pay the hydro bill? I mean, these are the questions that people are facing. And, and I know that you're thinking, oh, come on, this is Hamilton. People's not They are in that circumstance, and they're having to make those decisions. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I have talked to some of these folks and, and some of these great agencies, including obviously you guys at Food Share, but Good Shepherd and St. Matthew's House yeah. and so many others. And they're saying, look at you know what, this individual, I won't mention the name, uh, has, has a debilitating disease. That's why they're Ontario Disability. They can't yes. afford the medicine because they have That's to right. pay rent and they have to buy groceries. They can't afford the medication that they need. That's the kind of circumstance that a lot of people in this city are facing. Do you know, on the taxpayer base in the province, every man, woman, and child pays between 2000 and 2500 in and around there to do nothing about poverty. 
Can you imagine if we actually took that money and used it to do something with poverty? This is what it costs us to do nothing. That's, 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 that's just extraordinary. And, and I know, too, that um, I talk to people all the time, Bill, and, they, and, you know, and, and they're not complainers. They're just saying it's really, really hard. It's really tough. I don't know how I'm going to make it next month. Some come back a couple times a month because they just can't do it. If you are making $700 a month and your rent is 800 do the math. You're going to a hot meal program. You're coming to the food bank a couple of times. Whatever it is to, to, to put food on that table. You know what I mean? It, it's gone too far. And, and we're hearing, again, and the, the frustration here, we're hearing again hollow words from the government. I mean, when they canceled the yeah. basic income program, uh, the minister, Lisa McLeod, uh, said, well, our, you know, it's a patchwork thing. It's a pilot project, for heaven's sakes, minister. I mean, people know that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and it was perking. And we've talked to people that were on the program, and it was having yes, an impact. But she says, no, our goal is to put people back to work and keep them there. Well, yeah, yada, yada, yada. I mean, show us how. Because uh, I know, know what, some of these people. I mean, the, uh, a 49-year-old who gets laid off uh, from his job and all of a sudden has no income, it's pretty tough to simply say, i got to go find another job, because they're not that plentiful, if you're, especially if you're geared into one particular lifestyle. And, uh, and I've heard all the complaints, Joanne, and you've heard this for yeah. years. Well, go back to school, better yourself. Yes. Easier said than done when you've got a family to feed. Sure. Like when 39% of the people are kids, what is this, you know, what are we sending the kids out to work? 37% are disabled. 35% are on OW already required to do job searches. You know what I mean? We have about 1,800 households right now at extreme risk of homelessness. This is urgent. This is urgent. And we have a provincial government who's, who's now thinking about, well, do some other pro. Let's just throw everything out. Don't start over. Why start over? We have a ton of evidence base right now that could help us and help these people move forward. It's not right. And it, at some point, something has to get done. The, our city is doing our part. We, I, I can't believe how generous this city actually is. I'm so happy we live here. And I'm so happy for the people who are, have to go through this, that they live here in Hamilton. You know what I mean? And right now, Jim, this is, Bill, this is even a gift, uh, bringing more awareness to the situation here. And I thank you so much for that today. Well, because uh, these numbers need to be talked about. I mean, and, you know, we are talking about uh, food banks, and, and food banks are, are, are part of the, the solution. It's not the entire solution. Affordable housing, no. and you talked about that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, City Council deserves a lot of credit for actually making that commitment, uh, as they have. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, something that a lot of people may just sloth off as an insignificant statistic is most of the people that we're talking about right now are paying market rent if they do have accommodation. Uh, which because uh, I know there's a, there's a, there's a misconception, Joanna, from a lot of people saying, oh, "If you're on low income, you just lo- move into geared to income." Yes, we do have geared to income units, but not enough of them. Not enough to supply for the supply for that's needed right now. So people are forced to pay market rent, which means, look at, I'm not making much money. I've got to pay seven, eight, nine hundred dollars sometimes to get a one bedroom place or even just a room somewhere, which leaves you no disposable income to pay anything else. They're saying now all of the analysts around jobs, jobs and all that, it takes $18 an hour just to get an average apartment. And the average apartment is now going to be around a thousand dollars. Well, if you're making seven hundred, what does that mean? Well, uh, you know, if it says you know, there, there's the calculation of how much you actually need to make to be able to afford a place, and then contrast that against the minimum wage that's being paid, and that's why you've got some of these people, which we call the working poor, are working two, sometimes three, part-time jobs to try to make enough money. 
It, it really is true. I don't know how much faster they can dance. You know, you can shoot bullets at the feet. They can't go any faster. They can't get any more jobs. There are, you know, uh, we we talk about children and we have like babies coming to the food bank. You know what I mean? And I, and I, when I think of that, I think, my goodness, what has this become? This whole political foray of, of really blaming poverty on the poor. What has come of this province that they would let babies go hungry in communities across the province and play politics with that? It boggles my mind. This city and all of its supports produces through our food network um, something equal to almost 9,000 meals a day. Food equal to that is being brought in and distributed back out again. These are the frontline agencies who are dealing with this day in, day out. Food is helping to supply that food going in and out. And I, I got to tell you, Bill, they are the real foot soldiers in this war against poverty. Hearing that over and over and having this uh, basic pilot program as a as finally something evidence based finally from from that program we're going to figure that out and i'm going to tell you about that program most people understand lico as low income cutoff measure that's usually where revenue canada says if you don't make money your household doesn't make money above that level you're usually living in poverty the rates that people were getting on basic income pilot project was only about 75% of that level. It wasn't even up to that level where you can say, okay, you're, you've made it past the poverty mark. They were still under it. And it still had massive gains for people. Still. These numbers, and again, I want to I put these out here just so our listeners get some idea of exactly what we're talking about. I know you see this on a daily basis, Joanne. But uh, on a typical day in Hamilton, 33 seniors will seek help at a food bank. Yeah. On a typical day in Hamilton, 276 children. That's a big number. 276 children every day will line up at a food bank to get enough food from, from, from the food bank so they can eat three meals a day or two, depending on exactly. And, and that's, uh, by the way, part of the other problem, too, is, of course, keeping those shelves full at the food bank. And I know you do an outstanding job with food share, but again, it comes down to the community having to step up and say, look, it, we have to do what the government won't do. That's exactly what we have to do. And we have to stay advocating and we have to hold provincial governments accountable. When you see 276 children lined up a food bank, shouldn't they be out playing? Isn't that what being a child's about? Once a child uh, experiences hunger on an ongoing basis, they have cognitive impairments. That starts to develop. And if that hunger prolongs, those states prolong, though, those uh, impairments can remain permanent. We're now, we're now affecting the next generation of kids learning capabilities just because of provincial rates for OW and ODSB. Like, it doesn't make any sense. There are 6,000 people on the waiting list for affordable housing in this community. And the, and the numbers are getting larger and larger and larger. And, and, and by the way, as bad as that is about that waiting list, uh, it's worse in other communities. And, and some of those people are now saying, well, I'm going to go to Hamilton. At least I may have to wait seven years instead of 10 or 15. Uh, and, and it only exacerbates the problem. And, and it's important that these numbers come out there, and it's important that we get these statistics out and talk about names and faces. Uh, this is not something that we can think about in the abstract and just say poverty is somebody else's problem. Uh, it's everybody's problem because it does have an impact on our entire community. Uh, and, and, you know, when we start talking about some of the problems going on in this community and some of the problems in neighborhoods, uh, start looking at the root causes. And this is the, usually it goes right down. If you want to get right down to the elementary part of it, Joanne, it's all, it starts with poverty. 
and and really and problems grow from that. I think probably is a big part of that. And also, to be able, anybody who gets money from these provincial programs, every cent of it gets spent locally here in our community. You know what I'm saying? It's not like money's just being sent down the pipe and people are just spending it willy-nilly. It's going on basic needs. It's going on things people need that services in our own community are, 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 will also feel that impact. It helps with business. It helps everywhere. You know what I mean? Uh, there's no downside to it except some political rhetoric about making children go out to work and the disabled wheel, hop, or limp all the way to the employment center. You know what I'm saying? At some point, you've got to take the blinders off and say, here's the reality check. At some point, we're better than this as Canadians. We are better than this, that we would let children and people suffer unneedlessly when we could actually do something about it. It's just wrong. Well, this is a, a very important report, and, and it's called Hunger Count. I know you do this on an annual basis, and and, and when I'm looking at this actually compared to, to last year, uh, the numbers are not getting any better. Uh, you know, we talk about the renaissance that's going on in Hamilton and the money that's being invested, and these are all good news stories, and we need to obviously talk about that. But we can't turn our backs on those that are still falling behind as, as we try to move forward. We, you know, the, the whole idea of a compassionate society is to say, look, reach back and try to help that individual along. And we, we seem to have forgotten or lost a lot of that in the last little while. And, and I, I think this is a wake-up a wake call, really, Joanne, uh, to say, look, we've got to do something about this. This is not about a provincial government that says, well, we're worried about our bottom line. Uh, this is a provincial yeah. government that seems to have turned their back on those that are vulnerable, and not just Hamilton, but in every other community. And every community across the province, Bill, that's happening, and every community. And now let me just talk about the Renaissance just for a moment. I am so happy our city is transforming. It's changing. There's a lot of wonderful things. But nobody's buying houses that the people we serve. Nobody's going out for dinner or doing art or any of those things. Even though those things are wonderful, that doesn't translate into a, a help for the people we serve. It's an economic imbalance. And until we fix that economic imbalance, they'll never be able to participate, just like you and I, in our very community that we live in. And, and for, uh, when you say never leave anybody behind, this is exactly how we feel in the food bank network, the emergency food network, and the food. We do feel like Marines. No one gets left behind. We will do, we use every second, every minute of our day to ensure that, you know, food is put on the shelf so those frontline agencies, so they can do their, their work at the front line, talking to people and figuring out how are they going to help people move forward, not just with food, but for other assistance and other, uh, you know, supports that might be in the community. I, I really take my hat up to those frontline agencies. They're amazing people. And thank God for Hamilton, we have them. Joanne Santucci at Hamilton Food Share. Joanne, thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. You have a good day. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In an interview with uh, Global TV's Alan Carter, the house leader for the Ontario PCs, uh, says that, yeah, there are going to be some costs to what they want to do, but it's going to be better for us in the long run. It's uh, it's Focus Ontario, which, uh, by the way, makes its uh, debut again this weekend, the season debut. Alan Carter, of course, is the, uh, the co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, and the host of Focus Ontario. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Alan, with all this thing, how do you have any time at all for anything else? I don't understand. Well, who needs time for anything else? All <laughs> I want to do is talk about politics. You know, I, I'm like you, Bill. I just uh, I eat, sleep, and drink this stuff. Well, you've got a lot to eat this time. I mean, I, now I'm not going to, no spoiler alerts here. I don't want to talk about what's go, what's on the show. We, we do know that, obviously, you're going to be talking with Todd Smith, who is the, the uh, government house leader for the Ontario PCs for the Ford government. Uh, in, in a pretty revealing conversation, I thought, Alan. 
Uh, well, thanks, Bill. And, you know, we really kind of dig into what has been the opposite uh, reaction to all of the, the action-packed moves that the Ford government has put in place, and that has been legal trouble. So that for every time you say promise made, promise kept, it's been lawsuit threatened, lawsuit launched. And when pressed on it, uh, the House leader uh, said, yeah, you know, it's going to cost people money, in at least in the short term, but we believe that it will, you know, work itself out and that the, the savings, especially when we start talking about canceling energy contracts, that, yeah, sure, there's going to be some cost up front for that, but uh, that it'll save us money in the long term. Well, yeah, we've heard this before, haven't we? <laughs> and and I, I know that in, in the piece that, that you posted online, obviously, uh, uh, I know you referenced the, the gas plant situation from a previous government. Uh, that's something that uh, any time you raised it during the campaign, uh, they got pretty uncomfortable about it. They do well. They don't like they, they don't like that comparison. And of course, there's you know there's just as much danger as being in power for 15 years in the baggage that you carry as being in opposition for 15 years because it's pretty easy to go back and say, hey, but you said you know, uh, that this was not a thing to do. And you know the 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 liberals say, I'm sorry, the conservatives say it's not the same as with the gas plants, but it is fairly easy to draw a comparison to what the liberals said in 2011 when they said, in the middle of that campaign, we're going to cancel this Mississauga gas plant. And they won, and they did so. And that ended up costing us, as you know, a bundle of money. And how is it different for the conservatives to have said, in the lead-up to this campaign, we're going to cancel the White Pines uh, power wind power farm, that's the one in Prince Edward County, and... You know, the thing was underway. It's already being built. And sure enough, they go and cancel it. And guess what the number they're showing around is $100 million. That's what the the company that has the contract expects to make in a, a legal challenge for having it all of a sudden yarded out from underneath them. Are we going to have as much difficulty uh, trying to ascertain these costs as, as as we did with the gas plant? I mean, it just it just seemed as if it was you know, it was like a China, the torture, you know, just one drip at a time. We'd get a little bit of information, and no, that was denied. And it was a long time before we finally found out exactly how much this was going to cost uh, with the gas plants. Uh, are we going to go through this whole thing again with some of these other canceled contracts? Well, the, the major difference here, uh, Bill, is that. Um in that particular case, the liberals had a minority, so yeah, yeah. that um, in in the committee rooms, and this is where it all sort of played out. You know, the the end of days for Dalton McGinty was that in a minority, the committee members, you know, you have the opposition members have a majority on those committees, and they can band together and demand all kinds of really uncomfortable stuff that you don't that the government doesn't want to see, namely email and negotiations with those companies to, as they found out, you know, the liberals saying we're going to make you whole. And all of that was incredibly damning for the liberals. In this particular case, there is no power that the opposition parties have to demand that the conservatives produce any kind of uh, negotiations or email or anything like that about how much it's going to cost. Essentially, the you know the the government's going to say it's going to cost us X, and we may get the uh, auditor to look at it and say whether or not she you know she or whoever becomes the auditor agrees. But beyond that, we're not going to see the kind of information that we saw in the gas plants. Well, and if you, even if we're going to start to, I mean, even just to try to get estimates on stuff like this, I mean, it really depends on, on who actually wants to go to court. And, and, and as I'm sure you're going to talk about, if people watch the show this weekend, 
uh, th- that's getting to be a pretty long line. You know, whether it's just about the the canceled gas plant or the the wind projects, uh, it's the Green Energy Act and the people that bought into that. Uh, and, and this has become a rather litigious uh, government in, in such a very short period of time. Well, I think the conservatives are discovering um, that creating a legislation or creating agenda. Uh, takes more than just more bums and seats on your side of the aisle in the House. You know, it, just because you have a 76-member um, majority, yeah, that means that you can pass legislation fairly easily with that Queen's Park, but still the, the arbiter is, it remains the courts. And so that these things are all become challenged in the courts, and you have everything from ideological court challenges on things like uh, basic income and sex education to the, the business aspect of it, where you have the company that owns that white pine thing, for example, saying, "Well, thanks very much, but uh, we got this piece of paper here that says that this is this is our contract, and if you want to cancel it, guess what? You got to pay up." I mean, I, I, even if you're not into politics, I mean, just you know, if you're a sports fan, I mean, you fire the coach or you fire the manager, you got to pay them. I mean, you don't just say goodbye, get out the door. Uh, there, there are financial obligations to this. This, this really goes kind of back to the campaign, though, doesn't it, Alan? I mean, because uh, I know you and others that were following these folks around, not just Ford, but the others as well, Andrew Horvath and, and Kathleen Wynne, were trying to get those answers about, hey, how much is all this going to cost? And, and they were pretty short with their answers, if you even got answers about stuff like this. But now uh, they can't hide it anymore because now all of a sudden people are responding to this and saying, wait a second, we'll see you in court. Yes, and, and of course... <laughs> You know, it's a bit of a pox on all their houses. You know, I I sense that the people of this province have been poorly served by all the major political parties, especially when it comes to hydro. Nobody is really telling the bold-faced truth about it, which is, this is how much it costs, you know. And, yeah, that sucks, but that's how much it costs. Uh, And instead, we do this thing where we have this sort of three-card Monty game and this shell game where we move stuff around, and we've been doing it for decades in this province, and no party seems to be able to shake themselves of it. But now that we have the conservatives in power, they're the ones that said, no, no, we're going we're gonna, to you know, get out of all of these contracts, either these green energy contracts, we're going to get out of cap and trade, which means we're going to cancel all of those uh, rebates, all that money that was supposed to go from everything from Teslas to you know, school repairs. All of that has a big cascade through the entire system. So at, at the end of the day, Bill, we just don't know what it's going to cost in terms of legal defense to be able to try and uphold this agenda for the conservatives. Well, yeah, and that's that's going to be a big number. You can count on that. As I show you, even if it's a philosophical thing like like uh, you know the, the the sex ed program, I mean, it's the lawyers get paid the same <laughs> whether they're arguing <laughs> this or that or the other thing. And this is going to go on for quite some time. And and you have to wonder just about the the ramifications on this. I mean, obviously we got saddled with the previous government about uh, you know their their commitment to long term contracts and having to pay some of those out for the, some of these wind projects, etc. Uh, but you got to wonder what the bill's going to be like for some of this stuff. And, and I, I guess that's the big question, and I know you'll be talking to Todd Smith about that uh, on Focus Ontario this week. Uh, by the way, you were talking about cancelled projects, and, and it, interestingly enough, of course, the one that they did cancel happens to be in the writing of uh, said PC member. Uh, they promised another one, too, up at Battle Falls, the hydro project down there. They seem to be walking that one back a little bit. Well, they have walked it right back, and, uh, you know, I, I asked Todd Smith about that. He makes the distinction, which I'm not sure that the people of Bala Falls find um, too true, which is that uh, it was candidate Ford 
in the race for the leadership who had at that point made the promise to cancel the Battle Falls Hydro plan and that it wasn't something that the party had said during the general election once Ford had won the leadership. They didn't repeat it at that point. However, they didn't go back. They didn't tell people in Battle Falls, oh, by the way, <laughs> we're, we're backing down from that promise. It wasn't until after the election that we've discovered that uh, the premier had said that, no, it's too expensive. We'd love to cancel it. We don't think it's a good deal. It's a scam, I think he called it. But his estimation that it would cost, and isn't this funny, this number again, $100 million to cancel it, and all we would end up with as a province is a hole in the ground. But isn't that the same number to cancel the other project that they are going ahead on? Yeah, so that's exactly the same number that's estimated. I thought I'd heard that. Yeah, I thought I'd heard that number before. And and what are we going to get for that? We're going to get a bunch of half-built uh, wind turbines. This is this is it's it's so confusing when when we start adding this. I, I guess what we need to do here is to to be able to latch onto something. Is is obviously these guys at some point when they sit back down again and start the fall session are going to have to come up with a budget. And I, I guess that's obviously when we're going to get a pretty good idea is just where these numbers are and what they plan to do. Because a lot yeah. of the stuff has kind of been on the back of an envelope so far. Well, I mean, the, the, remember the, the Ford Conservatives, the Ford government has bought itself a whole bunch of time with this line-by-line audit stuff. Yeah. Um, and the initial report by uh, former B.C. Premier Gordon Campbell is already on Finance Minister uh, Vic Fideli's desk. It's been delivered to him, this, the er- early assessment as they go through this thing. Uh, he, the Finance Minister says he'll release it perhaps in the, I would look for it perhaps next week or maybe the week after, but I think next week. And so as we get back into session, we're going to actually start seeing what the conservatives claim is in the kitty, which uh, you want to get guess whether or not they're going to say that the cupboard's empty or full. What do you think? <laughs> uh, they, it's the same speech. I mean, isn't it, it just, I, I think it's, it's sitting someplace at Queen's Park, isn't it, Alan? That, and they just, whoever <laughs> comes into power just says, uh, yeah, pull out the thing that uh, the cupboard is bare, that speech. Yeah, let's get that one going again. Uh, because yeah, you, you know that's going to be the justification for everything they want to do. Well, that's it. And so, so look for that in the next week or two. Uh, and then, of course, on the 24th, the uh, House comes back. So in the next two weeks, you're going to start seeing the conservatives really lay the groundwork on, okay, well, here's what we found when we looked at the books. We got nothing. Uh, and that means X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, we're watching with great interest here in Hamilton because of uh, the commitment they made to public transit here, i.e. The, the light rail transit line. Uh, and I know that's been an ongoing debate in Toronto, uh, depending on who's at City Hall and who's in Queen's Park. Uh, but, you know, there's a billion dollars uh, supposedly on the table right now, and there's a lot of skeptics in this community right now that are wondering when that report comes out, if they're going to say, you know, I know what we said, but, uh, and boy, is that going to have an impact on the municipal election uh, here in this city. And speaking of municipal elections, obviously that's one of the other court challenges they're facing now in Toronto, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, and that, there, there's another one that we, I mean, I, the, the lawyers I talk to, all of them seem to be in somewhat dis- of a disagreement as to whether or not what the validity of that challenge is. I think everyone agrees that the government, that the provincial government has the power and the authority to do what they've done, which is slash the number of seats and be able to sort of change city council. But the challenge on timing and on non-consultation and on the fact that the election was already underway, and then, oh, oh, hey, by the way, sorry, we're changing the rules, that that has, you know, that has some possibility to throw a real wrench. And 
I mean, keep in mind what happened with Tesla. I mean, it was a small example, I think, of what may come for the Ford government increasingly, which is that the, you know, the judge says, no, no, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. And the government has to reverse itself and say, okay, all right, we don't agree with the judge, but hey, we're going to extend the rebate to these 600 people that we previously said no. How's this going to roll out? I, I know you guys have talked about this on, on Global News at 5.30 and 6 over the last couple of days, but, I, I mean, if you're running for office in, in the municipal election in Toronto right now, uh, I, I mean, what area are you going to represent? I mean, what if the court reverses that, or are they even going to get a decision before October? Well, the court reverses itself. I'm running. That's okay. I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> because there'll be a whole bunch of spots with nobody. That's what I'm hoping. I don't know. I, it's... I, there is a mass confusion because you're right, and and keep in mind also. I mean, it's the same thing in Hamilton, but in, in Toronto specifically, you know, the, the the weight of incumbency here is tremendous. I believe the last time around there were only two new councillors that were not incumbents, mm-hmm. um, and so it's been a problem here because you know there's a there's an apathy for uh, voting uh, municipally, and if you have an incumbency, you have such a, a strong, uh, um, you know, chance to win that I, I, you know, I think there's a real confusion going on. There's going to be a lot of incumbents who, if this does hold, who will just say, I'm not running. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and it's going to be fascinating to see how the government responds as each one of these court decisions starts to come down and how they're, they're going to have to uh, uh, either change policy or obviously move forward and soldier on. Focus Ontario, it uh, debuts again this weekend, uh, Saturday at 5.30, and a couple of times on Sunday morning you can catch it on Global, as always. It's uh, fascinating to watch. It's uh, it's my go-to place just before I watch the NFL pregame show every Sunday, Alan. Uh, at 11, well, it's on 11.30, and then I turn on the pregame show after that, so... It's it's, sure. it's it's the routine in the Kelly household. Well, you know, uh, our show had just just a few less concussions, <laughs> but lots of body contact. Watch for it this week. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Have a great weekend, Alan. Thanks for the time right. today. Alan right. Carter, of course, uh, from Global TV, and uh, don't forget about Focus Ontario this weekend. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.